Now we're going to start with some responsorials. Uh, I'm going to say the bits in heavy type, uh, light type, and you're going to say the bits in heavy type. And if you don't say them, I'll look silly up here. So I expect you to say them out loud. And it's a way of us really centering ourselves because it looks like a concert. It may smell like a concert, but actually it's a service. Actually, this is to the glory of God, and we want to remind our, ourselves of that. So, with pipes of tin and wood make known the truth each star displays. Creation is a field that's sown with seeds of thanks and praise. Let healing harmonies release the hurts the heart compiles that God through music may increase the grace that reconciles. So again, we're going to sing, say, Psalm. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Do, after you. <laughs> Very English. No, after you. Um, so we're going to say together Psalm 100. Uh, I'm going to say the bits in light type. You're going to say the bits in heavy type again. So Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the lands. Know that the Lord who made us is God. Enter God's gates with thanksgiving and God's courts with praise. For the Lord is good. Good morning again. It's a great honor to have been involved in this wonderful, wonderful tradition of Bach cantatas here at the Aspen Chapel for most of these 25 years. I want to thank the Aspen Chapel community for its enthusiastic and continued support, especially these dedicated singers, and most of all, Susan Nicholson, without whose tireless, tireless efforts, Bach cantata Sunday would not be happening. The excellent singers and instrumentalists from the Aspen Music Festival and School, as well as many local musicians, have also made great contributions through the years. I also want to take this opportunity at this time to read a portion of a letter that Susan received on Friday from the Reverend Thomas Troger, who with Susan initiated this series of Bach cantata services, and whose moving sermons and wonderful flute playing inspired us all. I received much of my delight the email announcing Sunday's Bach service and that it marks the 25th anniversary. It warms my heart to think that these services are still going on. What an accomplishment. It strikes me as an especially important reminder to the Aspen community of the spiritual depths from which this music springs and to which it gives a compelling witness. That from Thomas Troger. Today, to celebrate these 25 years, we're presenting part one of one of Bach's most joyous cantatas, 
which he called an oratorio. In reality, the Christmas oratorio is a series of six related cantatas that were originally presented during the morning service on six days of the Christmas season. So they didn't, were not presented altogether as a unit. And from, from Christmas Day through Epiphany, but an oratorio, on the other hand, is a single work intended not for the church, but for the concert hall, apart from the church service. But then, Bach called it an oratorio, and who are we to argue with Bach? Why a Christmas cantata in August? The choir asked. <laughs> First, it's a, it's a fabulous work, which you will soon discover. And, well, because Susan has always wanted to do it, and this seemed to be the perfect time. But also, some years ago, more to the message and the point, Irene was recording, uh, my wife Irene was recording a Christmas album, and among the songs and carols on the album, she recorded a lovely song meant for children, Christmas is a Feeling, written by the late Natalie Sleeth, who lived in Denver. And here, here are the lyrics. Christmas is a feeling, filling the air, its love and joy and laughter of people everywhere. Christmas is a feeling bringing good cheer. It reaches out to touch you as the holiday draws near. It's mistletoe and falling snow and candles burning bright. It's a baby in a manger on a cold winter's night. But if Christmas is a feeling bringing such good cheer, then why, oh why, don't you and I try to make it last all year? Here we are. We are hearing a Christmas cantata in August so that we might keep this message of love and joy in our hearts and practice it in our lives the year round. The celebration of Christmas as we know it today, exemplified by the lyrics of Christmas as a feeling, mostly came into being in the 19th century. The idea of a family celebration focused on children and accompanied by consumerism is actually a Romantic era concept. We all know that this sentiment, as lovely as it is, has little to do with the real meaning of Christmas. The birth of a child in a lowly stable, a child whose destiny was to die on the cross in order to become the savior of the world, is what Christmas is supposed to celebrate. Bach was also challenged by this dichotomy. When he was born in 1685, Christmas traditions retained some of their medieval roots. Carnival-like celebrations were still found in the streets of Lutheran cities in Germany toward the last half of the 17th century. But theologians and secular authorities attempted to abolish these traditions. This war on Christmas coincided with the general trend of internalizing spirituality. Christmas became a feast that was no longer celebrated in the, in the streets, but was instead to be contemplated in the human heart. The rocking of a real cradle, once a popular practice in, the Chris, in Christmas rituals all over Europe, was transformed into the image of Jesus inhabiting the cradle of the human heart. This morning's cantata introduces the love imagery that dominates the entire six-part oratorio, bride and groom, the beloved, and the heart as the dwelling place of the divine. It presents the the contrast between the high expectations of, for that Savior of Israel and Jesus' humble birth, and contrasts the outward celebration of that birth and the inward contemplation of its meaning. The tone of the cantata is set by the opening. It begins with timpani, 
The only sacred cantata that begins that way. Full disclosure here, you don't see timpani. They weren't available, so Susan will be imitating them on the organ pedals. Next year, I'm going to lobby for a a timpani stop on the organ. (laughs) Bach begins as though welcoming celestial royalty. The drums are followed by flutes, oboes, and a a trio of trumpets, and a great rush of strings. The music for this royal welcome is taken from a secular birthday cantata, but that Bach wrote for Maria Josepha, Queen of Poland. He borrowed much of the music from this this oratorio, for this oratorio, from that. The chorus enters with a paraphrase of the psalm we read today, which I almost uh, got us to skip over, Psalm 100. Shout, exalt, rise up, praise the day. The expectation of the prophecy in the Old Testament is that the Savior of Israel would be born a powerful king, that he was born in a manger in the most humble of circumstances was and is for some a source of doubt that Jesus was the prophesied Savior. Bach presents a way in both music and text in this cantata to reconcile these doubts for us. Following this regal opening, and if you want to follow, I'm on on number two, and you can maybe correlate what I'm saying with what the, the texts are. Following this regal opening is a straightforward recitation of the circumstances surrounding the journey of Joseph Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. The evangelist in Bach's cantatas and oratorios is the biblical narrator. That the words of the Bible are being sung as as recitative, accompanied only by uh, cello and organ chords, allows Bach to highlight and color important words, such as a high note on Joseph, a harsh dissonance on David, and a minor chord when announcing that Mary was pregnant. The non-biblical narratives have a much richer accompaniment. The alto recitative and the arias that follows introduce the love imagery that flows through the oratorio, bride and bridegroom, and the heart as the dwelling place of the divine. The text borrows images of mystic unity from the Song of Songs and uses visual images such as star out of Jacob that breaks forth as a stream of light. The aria is a virtual love song with Zion welcoming her bridegroom. The center of the cantata, number five, is not a grand aria, but a simple chorale tune that was very familiar to Lutherans at the time. The chorale that Bach selects is the same chorale that he uses five times with increasing depth of emotion in the St. Matthew Passion. Known as the Passion Chorale, or O Sacred Head Now Wounded, it's usually associated with Good Friday. Here, Bach prepares to welcome Jesus into the world with the words, How should I greet you, O longing of the whole world, to that same tune. As the high point of the cantata, Bach connects the birth of Christ with his death on the cross. Renaissance paintings of the birth of Christ have two major settings. The most common show manger, Joseph, Mary, Jesus, the angels, shepherds, the three wise men surrounded by the stable in a fairly literal representation. But there is also another, more allegorical series of depictions that have reduced the foreground to just the virgin and child. 
However, if you look into the distance in many of these paintings, you'll see a lone tree. Sometimes this tree is an apple tree, representing the Garden of Eden and the fall from grace for which Jesus came to redeem us. In others, the tree is of an indeterminate type, a more looming presence than cooling shade. The German poet Edward Mürke describes the scene in his profound poem, Auf ein altes Bild, to an old picture. In the green landscape of a blossoming summer, beside cool water, reeds, and canes, behold how the sinless child plays freely on the virgin's knee. And there, in the woods blissfully, alas, growing already is the stem that will become the cross. This is a great distance from the family celebration that came to the fore in the Romantic era. And the chorale gives the cantata a depth of meaning that it would not have if it were just about joyously welcoming the newborn child. The evangelist continues with the biblical narration and again emphasizes the humble birth of the Christ child. This leads directly into a dialogue between the choir sopranos, who sing a familiar Martin Luther chorale, not so familiar to us, but it was to his congregation, and the bass, who comments on the words of the chorale, that the Son of the Highest came into the world as a man for our salvation. This section is one of the most interesting movements in the Bach cantatas. Bach gives the the sopranos four chorale phrases, each in a different key and each framed by an instrumental response. And here are the four lines the the, uh, sopranos sing together. He has come to earth in poverty so that he may have mercy on us and make us rich in heaven. Lord, have mercy. The bass comments between each line with recitative, representing the voice of a believer, but one who is expressing doubts about the humble birth of Christ. However, toward the end, he agrees with the words of the chorale, which has already grasped the meaning of why Christ was born into poverty. This unique hybrid structure leads to a powerful bass aria, whose original form was a song of homage to the Polish queen in the secular cantata that he borrowed the music from. But here, the aria emphasizes the dichotomy between the expectation of a kingly savior and a low-born child. It begins and ends with a regal theme in the trumpet, extolling the great Lord, the mighty King. The middle section, with a much more subdued accompaniment, presents the central issue of Christ's humble birth. He who maintains the whole world, who created its glory and beauty, must sleep in a hard crib. What appears as a dichotomy in the text is resolved in Bach's music. Jesus reveals himself as a king in the poverty of the manger. The final chorale summarizes all that has been heard earlier, the juxtaposition of royal lineage and humble birth, the outward expression of joy and the inner love of the Lord. Bach takes for this a popular German Christmas carol meant for children and intersperses instrumental interludes whose brass fanfares are reminiscent of the regal opening of both the preceding uh, bass aria and the, and the, opening, cor- uh, the opening chorus. The text is a tender poem 
inviting the presence of Christ into our hearts. By combining them in one movement, Bach brings the dichotomy to a synthesis. Christ is both the one who dwells in the poverty of the stable and, by extension, in the poverty of the human heart. And a mighty king born to lift the world from sin. Much of the historical information and analysis I've used this morning is from a book, Johann Sebastian Bach's Christmas Oratorio, Music, Theology, and Culture by Edmund Rathi. He ends with this description of how the Christmas celebration has changed since the middle of the 18th century. It is not accidental that it is a child, Tiny Tim, who is at the center of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol from 1843. And it is the affection toward his neighbors that Ebenezer Scrooge discovers when facing the spirits of Christmas past, present, and future. Christmas is still a feast of love, yet not the vertical love relationship of the mystical love in the Song of Songs, but rather a horizontal love toward one another in family and in society. The adaptable interpretations of the Christmas oratorio, the fact that it could play to these changing understandings of Christmas, contributed to its success. Its simplicity, emotionality, and sentiments of love were easily integrated into the Christmas culture that emerged in the 19th century and still endures today. This rather secular view of the oratorio reflects our current secular experience of Christmas. What is more important... As we listen on this first Sunday in August at the Aspen Chapel, is that we hear the deep religious conviction that Bach incorporates in Christmas Oratorio, while at the same time appealing to those with a changing view of Christmas celebrations. I hope it doesn't come as a surprise to you, but Bach Cantata Sunday is not only about Bach and his music, he just happens to be the best example of a great musician and composer using his gifts to deepen our faith and through his music help us to realize the presence and impact of God in our lives. Bach Part 1, the Christmas Oratorio. We're so fortunate to be here in this peaceful place listening to this beautiful music. Let's just open our hearts to those less fortunate than ourselves. We open our hearts to those who are suffering from natural disasters all around the world. We particularly think of those in this valley fighting fires, in California, all over the country where people are in danger and Firefighters and first responders are also in danger. Pray for fires in Europe. Pray for fires all over places where it's hot and unbearable. Those who've lost their homes and lost their lives. Also pray for those who are suffering through disasters such as plane crashes, families who've had loved ones taken from them. Let our hearts go out to them. And to our troubled world, we think of all those who are in war zones, living under oppressive regimes. 
for those who are, have no justice. Think of those who are hungry and homeless. Think of those in hospital, in prisons, in difficult times. I especially pray for those who are close to us here in the chapel. Pray for Patricia Hill, for Father Joseph Boyle, the family of Trish Neese who died recently, families of James Vara and John Teague, for Martha Martin, part-time resident facing pancreatic cancer, for Sophie Layton, four years old, facing stage four cancer, and for Soleil Unta Enter for her checkup in August after two years' struggle with stage four cancer. And we just think of those in our lives who are having difficulty at the moment, just remember them in their hearts. Just offer them up. Lord, we pray for your healing power, for your resolving peace and your grace and passion in all these circumstances. We pray this in Jesus' name.